Hello, I'm Paula Simons and this is Alberta Unbound. Barry Morishita is the president of the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association. Although the word urban may be a tad misleading, since the AUMA represents not just big cities such as Edmonton and Calgary, but all of Alberta's cities, towns, villages, and summer villages. Ferry himself is the mayor of Brooks, an agricultural community about 200 kilometers southeast of Calgary. Funnily enough, though, I first met Barry in Ottawa two years ago when I was a brand new senator and he was in the capital for a big meeting of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. We talked all about federal municipal politics, but the more we talked, the more I knew I wanted Barry to share the story of his Alberta community and his Alberta family with as large an audience as possible. Because if you want to understand the evolving identity of Alberta, Brooks and Barry might be your most useful guides. Here's our conversation, recorded this past fall as Brooks was recovering from the first wave of COVID-19 and gearing up for the second. Brooks is a, a somewhat unusual community. I think when people think of rural Alberta, they don't often think of something as multicultural as Brooks. And I wondered for those who are listening from outside Alberta, or indeed for those from other parts of Alberta, could you tell us a little bit about Brooks and, and uh, its population? Sure. That, that, you know, it's a, it is a good point. A lot of people don't think about multiculturalism in Brooks and, and what that means. So uh, we're a city of about 15,000. The region's about 25,000. Uh, about a third of the city of Brooks's uh, population are visible minorities. And most of those uh, would be recent immigrants. And by recent immigrants, I mean in the last 20 years. Um, we have a, a large packing plant uh, owned by JBS, uh, which has about 2,900 employees altogether, uh, of which a vast majority of them reside here. And um, over the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of families be re reunited here, and uh, they've established themselves uh, as a very uh, big part of our society, a part of our fabric. So it's quite unique. Um, we're known as the city of 100 hellos, and that's because there are more than 100 languages spoken here in the city. So while Toronto might say it's the most diverse city in Brooks, uh, we like to actually counter that and say, on a per capita basis, we are far more diverse. So what are some of the larger ethnocultural communities that, uh, that one would find in Brooks? So interestingly enough, when the, when the immigration first started, uh, we, had, uh, we have a large population from East Africa, uh, and Eritrea, Somalia, the Sudan. Um, over the years, we've, got, we've grown with uh, a fairly large Colombian community, Chinese. Uh, we also have uh, some Central Africa, Congo now. Um, those would be some bigger groups. Recently, we've seen some uh, rise in uh, European immigration, Poland, Ukraine, Russia. Uh, it it kind of comes in waves, but the way the recruiting has gone, um, Philippines, Filipinos, we have a huge Filipino community as well. And it's where and, the plant has determined where to go. <laughs> Mennonites from Latin America too? Yes, as well. We have uh, Mexican or Central Mexico. A lot of those have come in as uh, seasonal workers as well. And they have, a lot of them have established themselves over the years. We had a broad 
pretty good-sized Mennonite community over the years uh, for a long time here. But the new, new wave is, yeah, the, the Mexican uh, North, North Province Chihuahua mostly from, that have been farming up here. So what are the challenges and the advantages for a small but very diverse community like Brooks? Well, certainly the challenges stem from, uh, you know, are, are mostly historic. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an old, relatively old farm and ranching community, you know, established at the turn of the century and before. Uh, European uh, Christian settlers for the most part. And that's been the way it's been like that right up till about the, um, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s when the plant started expanding. And then it rapidly happened. So I think one of the challenges is how rapidly it's changed. You know, it happened uh, in terms of kind of uh, communities overnight <laughs> in a lot of ways. And it continues to grow that way. So that's, so that's probably a, a big challenge. Um, and the other, the other ones are just normal immigrant challenges. Uh, you know, language becomes an issue. Understanding culture and communications, uh, all of those things still happen and they're just compounded by the relatively short space it's happened. Now, your own family, the Morishita family, has a very particular story of how you ended up in southern Alberta. I wondered if you could tell people a little bit about the Morishitas and how they came to live where you do. Sure. And, and again, that's been, the, my interest in that has been piqued by my job as the mayor and seeing the immigration here. So, um, so I am actually a third generation Japanese Canadian. I'm half Japanese. Um, my great grandparents on my grandmother's side immigrated to Canada uh, in the early 1900s or, um, and uh, said so they were in various places for a while, but actually at the, the turn of the, or when the war came around, they were actually living uh, in near Haney, BC. Um, so uh, they were interred uh, in 1945 uh, or 1942 or whatever, 41, sorry, the, when the war started and Canada was uh, declared war on Japan. So all the Japanese Canadians had to move 100 miles from the coast. And there are different, two different groups of families. So some had already kind of seen this happening and had come to Southern Alberta to work as farm laborers. And so technically weren't interred, although they did lose all their stuff. The other group, which is my grandmother's group. So she was born in Canada. She's Canadian. Uh, she, they were interred at a camp in Tashmi, BC, which is about 15 miles from Hope. Uh, they lost, uh, they, they had their farmland um, and uh, all of that taken away, guns, they had their pickup truck taken away. We're told they were going to get it all back. Uh, and obviously they didn't. Um, and uh, that happened fairly quickly. But as, you, as the, the war went on, um, my dad was actually born in an internment camp. And so my dad was born as an enemy of the state of Canada, which is so bizarre, as was my aunt uh, in 1945 and 1946. And then shortly after that, they moved... Uh, to Rosemary, Alberta, and then ultimately they settled in Patricia and bought a farm there in the 1950s. And uh, that original homestead is still there. And uh, yeah, so through the years, it's been an interesting thing. My mom on, on my Caucasian side is the most recent immigrant. She immigrated here in 1952 when she was eight years old. <laughs> so my English side, so to speak, is the most recent immigrant. But on the Japanese side, I'm a third generation Canadian. 
your families were victims of one of the most racist acts the Canadian government has ever perpetrated on its own citizens. Yeah. I'm wondering, did that shape your sense of identity as an Albertan or a Canadian, or was it just something your family never spoke about and that you only discovered more as, as you became an adult? Yeah, you know, uh, my not fitting in broadly um, certainly was an issue. I, I was in a small town. Um, there were, um, you know, kind of very defined groups in that town of which my family didn't belong to. So in that sense, I always felt a little bit outside. Uh, and I, you know, all, all, all cards on the table, I wasn't the best child best kid in the world. So um, I got in my fair share of trouble. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure that contributed to that piece. But, but you never felt quite part of the community. Um, but my, my um, for instance, I, I don't speak any Japanese. And they did that on purpose. You know, they didn't, they didn't want me to speak Japanese. They wanted me to be English. And they wanted my dad to be English. And they wanted their kids to be English or Canadian, so to speak. So, um, I, you know, there were it, bits of it. But the awareness uh, as you said, it did not come until later and it continues to be discovered. And I don't say that it's from a perspective of resentment of, about how I grew up or, or where I am now, um, but it, it does make things more enlightened about how I was treated, how my, how my grandparents acted uh, in particular. You know, that's really made a lot more sense of the years have gone by. I've stood in lines at to get coffee and had people talk about those people and realize that, you know, I'm one of those people as they see that word. And uh, that's a bit disheartening, but at the same time, it's also been an opportunity for me to step in and say, yeah, you know, I don't look terribly Japanese and uh, neither do my siblings. Uh, but uh, that being said, you, you know, my, my, I have nieces and nephews that definitely look way more Asian than, than, the, than their mom does for instance, and we see it again. And so, you know, it's, it's been a, it's an opportunity as well, but uh, discovery about culture and, and uh, the past is important. We, sh we should share it more often and more regularly. And do you think that helps you as the mayor of such a multicultural community and a community that, as you say, has had to go through a really sudden transition? Yeah, it, it, it definitely has, because I at least, uh, you know, initially you get, you, you have a little bit of sympathy for being identifiable as something different. So my, my, my grandparents always did identify as being Japanese, and there was a lot of pride in that. And, and I took a lot of pride in that because they did as well. Um, but yeah, it gives you a little bit of sympathy. And I, I didn't fit in in my community right away uh, when I was younger, so I, I have that. But what it has done, I think, even more is allowed me to kind of grow into that awareness with some of them. You know, I often, uh, when, when a larger group or a, a kind of a more broader group comes in, you know, we might have say 30 Colombians coming into the community. We try to get them here to City Hall or get an opportunity to talk to them. One of the first questions I ask is, um, you know, how did, what did it take for you to get to Canada? And uh, fascinating amazing stories. I mean, I was born here and had, and my family dealt with a certain set of issues. Uh, but at the end of the day, what it comes down to is, is just an understanding and a tolerance of difference. And that difference doesn't cost us. It has contributed. I think broadly, my family has contributed to this community. Um, I think uh, broadly, I have contributed. My family continues to do that. Uh, same with most immigrants. And I think rather than looking at 
where they come from to apply that lens of what they're going to be doing or what they are currently doing is a lot more uh, productive way of getting it. And I, I've learned that in my experience as the mayor, for sure. So do you yourself identify as an Albertan? And if so, how do you define what being an Albertan means to you? So I do identify as a Albertan. I'm born, uh, born and bred here in Alberta. I've lived most of my life. In fact, I'm just trying to think if I ever, haven't, except for a couple of summers, I think I've lived my whole life in this province. And what defines, uh, defines that categorization for me is simply the community I live in, uh, both locally and broadly. So uh, I, I identify as an Albertan because in, uh, you know, physically Brooks is in Alberta, but also by the people that call this place their home. So I identify with them. I have common values. Uh, with those. Um, and then provincially, broadly provincially, I, I, I think I still uh, feel those views that uh, feel the things that make me Albertan are just, you know, my, just where I've born and raised. Um, that being said, I am an extremely proud Canadian. Uh, I, I think sometimes our political discourse tries to separate us based on a policy issue. But the fact is, is that um, you know, I love this country. I weep sometimes when the national anthem's played. I get pretty emotional when when Canada rises above and does some spectacular things, just like I do when it happens in Alberta and just like I do when it happens in Brooks. So I just think it's a commitment to the community that I've been really blessed to be a part of. And that's both local, provincial and, and across the country for sure. You know, one of the things that we talked about a lot in the first season of Alberta Unbound was this sense of Alberta exceptionalism, if there was something in particular that set us apart. Now, you are the head of the AUMA, the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, and in that role, I know you travel all over Alberta, you talk to mayors from communities large and small, north, south, east, west, you're also very involved with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. So I'm wondering from those vantage points? I mean, do you see, is there some kind of intrinsic Alberta identity or spirit that connects us across the province or is it more regional? And when you're talking to mayor from other communities across the country, I mean, do we exaggerate the differences between Albertans and, and people from elsewhere or are there really specific Alberta issues and identifiers that, that, that define us? I, you know, I, so first of all, no, I, I think, or yes, I think we do exaggerate the differences. If I talk to, so at, at the local level, um, and by local governance level, I mean uh, a mayor and council, if I speak to a community in Quebec or New Brunswick about local issues, about municipalities, I, I can tell you that there are very few things that separate us. We are, the communities that you build, um, you know, they're not just things. They're not a, an, an acquisition of things. They're not um, whether your roads are in the best shape or not. Uh, and we can have local jokes about what those cultural identifiers were, whether it's the potholes or whether that street never gets paved for some reason. You know. But overall, there's no, uh, there isn't really a, a, a tangible thing that separates my municipality at its core from one in Halifax or Manitoba or BC. Now, that being said, we divide ourselves across this country based on 
broader things that affect us personally. So oil and gas in Alberta, the carbon economy, uh, forestry and the ocean, you know, the coast. What we keep forgetting in the conversation is that's my coast too. I only have, I only have access to water when I go east or when I go west or when I go north. I don't have it otherwise. And just like someone doesn't have the opportunity to uh, be able to survive above the 49th parallel unless we have some ways of delivering energy. Um, and we fail to kind of have a broad perspective. And you know what, bluntly between the provincial and federal governments in particular, they've used that to win elections or to lose elections as it may be on the policy. And so we've divided people by that. And uh, quite honestly, I, I, you know, uh, you don't wanna say a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, but at my level, it is. Now, you have very particular challenges in Brooks right now because the community was very hard hit by COVID-19, uh, an outbreak related to the packing plant. So what has the impact of the COVID-19 crisis been on the community? Has it exposed racial tensions? Were, were, you know, were people trying to scapegoat certain communities or has the community pulled together in the face of, I mean, really high COVID numbers in, your, in, in, a, in a city of 15,000? Um, we, we certainly noticed some, some division uh, and blame, uh, you know, as the, as the uh, crisis escalated. You know, we were at 850, peaked around 850 cases and for 15,000 people. But I think to the community's credit, it did, we did come together. Uh, we tested like crazy here um, and people showed up to be tested. You know, I think a good third of our population overall got tested. Uh, not too many places. And I think it allowed us to manage it. We actually, as a community, probably experienced more discrimination broadly than I think we saw it individually, at least in my experience. So we had communities that wouldn't serve people from Brooks during the pandemic. We had people that, uh, you know, would go to down the road to another community to go do something um, and were told, don't come in. So from a, from a community perspective, definitely we felt that and uh, probably saw that more than the individuals within the community blaming one group or another for, for being the ones carrying Corona. So that's a little bit of an interesting thing that happened. You have become a microcosm of so many of the challenges that Canada is facing in 2020. So what, what can the rest of us learn from what you have learned in Brooks? Well, I think we, a, a few things. So one is the value of immigration broadly. You know, there, there are critics out there and some smaller segments of the population that question the value of immigration to Canada and to Alberta and to their own community. But I can tell you that in Brooks, it's invaluable. When you think of a third of our population that rents here, lives here, buys homes here, buys groceries here, uh, kids are in the school, uh, look at the opposite if they weren't here. You know, what would, what would the size of our community be? What would be the economic value of people's businesses and homes and investments if they weren't here? So we, have, we, we get to see the illustration in a very big way of the value of immigration. That being said, we've also been exposed in a very big way to the challenges of immigration. And, you know, recently in the last few years, we've had the at least recognition that we are a landing spot, which when you watch the money that follows an immigrant and it's not a lot yeah. to bust the myth that they get tons of money and can sit down and do nothing. That's just not true. But when they are settled, um, 
you know, the money was, was staying where the settlement stop was, which in our case would have been Calgary or Medicine Hat, maybe or Edmonton. But now they actually come to Brooks and Brooks gets is the recipient of that support. So we've seen how, uh, how there's a better way to do it, that there's support should be more directly linked to people's needs and where they are. So we think we've seen that improvement. And again, that's something that people should learn from uh, and broadly how immigration should be better. And then the last thing I think is the most, uh, is that they're people. They are just people. Uh, people who've left countries, people who have been shot for believing that they should have a right just to have their home, people that have been uh, excluded and ostracized and kicked out because they're a different religion than somebody else. Um, and we pride ourselves on not being that in Canada yet. Too many times, I think we do exactly that. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the kind of the terrible idea that people have to fit in and give up to be here, uh, that's, not, that's not the case. My family had stuff taken away from them and they are still here contributing. And I think for us to stand up here and say that uh, where you stand up and say that was a terrible thing to happen to the Japanese Canadians, and it was a terrible thing to happen to them, no doubt. But now to stand up and say in the same breath that the current group of immigration, we don't owe them anything. We don't, we don't have to give them anything. We don't have to uh, be considerate and kind um, because they're not Canadian. It's just a replay of the same movie. We just put different people in the roles. Uh, we just forget it. And, I, I, and again, I, I think Brooks has been a really good example of where we have uh, a ranching community, a farming community that uh, has had to adjust, um, but not had to give up anything. Thank you. Thank you very much for generously giving us your time. And thank you for being part of Alberta Unbound. Oh, thank you, Paula. This is, a, this is a great idea. And I think this is part of those conversations that are going to make us all better. So uh, good on you for doing it. Thank you so much for coming with us on this tour of Brooks, Alberta. And thank you so much to Barry Morishita for being our guide. I hope you've been enjoying this second season of Alberta Unbound. If so, might I ask you to share us with others and to consider leaving us a review on your chosen podcast platform? Alberta Unbound is edited and produced by my talented staffer, Ame Charnelia. I'm Senator Paula Simons. Take care. And please join us again for another episode of Alberta Unbound as we tell more stories of the real Albertans who make Alberta the place we love. Mm-hmm.